Chapter 11 Hyping Phony Epidemics Crying Wolf Governments do like epidemics, just the same way as they like war, really. It's a chance to impose their will on us and get us all scared so that we huddle together and do what we're told. Dr. Damien Downing, President, British Society of Ecological Medicine, Al Jazeera, 2009. Fear is a market. To instill fear in people also has advantages, not only in terms of drug use. Anxiety-driven people are easier to rule. Gerd Gigerenzer, Director Emeritus at the Max Planck Institute for Educational Research, Torsten Engelbrecht, Virus Mania 2021. In 1906, infectious disease caused a third of all annual deaths in the United States, and 800 to 1,000 of every 100,000 Americans died of infectious disease. By 1976, fewer than 50 Americans per 100,000 died of infectious diseases, and CDC and NIAID were under extreme pressure to justify their budgets. Hyping pandemics became an institutional strategy in both agencies. Pharmaceutical companies and international health agencies, banking and military contractors soon found purchase in the ecosystem, and random pandemics discovered their own self-perpetuating rationale. Dr. Fauci's critics chide him for routinely exaggerating and even concocting global disease outbreaks to hype pandemic panic, elevate the biosecurity agenda, boost agency funding, promote profitable vaccines for his pharma partners, and magnify his own power. The historical record supports these charges. 1976 Swine Flu As chief of the NIAID's clinical physiology section of the Laboratory of Clinical Investigation, Dr. Fauci was, in 1976, a frontline spectator during the NIH's bogus swine flu pandemic. That year, a soldier at Fort Dix died of a lung ailment following a forced march. Army physicians sent some samples to CDC, which identified the malady as a swine flu. Dr. Fauci's NIAID boss, Richard Krauss, who Dr. Fauci would shortly replace, labored with his CDC counterpart David Sensor to spread terror of a catastrophic pandemic and initiate public demand for a vaccine. The NIAID chief convened in-house strategy sessions with Merck's iconic vaccine developer Maurice Hilleman and other immunization industry nabobs, congressional investigators, subsequently landed the notes from those consultations in which Dr. Hilleman candidly confesses that the resulting vaccine had nothing to do with science and everything to do with politics. In the August 2020 Rolling Stone, Gerald Posner, author of Pharma, Greed, Lies, and the Poisoning of America, recounted how Merck and other manufacturers utilized their secret meeting with the regulators to hatch a scheme that would guarantee industry profits while shielding pharma from liability. This innovation, now a persistent feature of Big Pharma's business model, 
turned out to be carte blanche for negligent and even criminal behavior. Pharma and NIAID told Congress, the White House, and the public that the Fort Dix swine flu was the same strain responsible for the 1918 Spanish flu pandemic, which they warned had killed 50 million people worldwide. They were lying. Scientists at Fort Dix, the CDC, and HHS knew that H1N1 was an ordinary pig virus posing no risk for humans. Nevertheless, NIAID conducted a hard-sell campaign warning of one million deaths in the United States. Working with the pharmaceutical companies, NIAID, CDC, and Merck persuaded incoming President Gerald Ford to sign a bill appropriating $135 million for vaccine manufacturers to inoculate 140 million Americans against the pestilence. At the behest of federal regulators, Ford appeared on TV, urging all Americans to get vaccinated. Ford's obligatory references to the 1918 Spanish flu mass fatalities inspired some 50 million U.S. citizens to hot-foot it to their local health center for injections of hastily concocted, shoddily tested, zero-liability vaccines that HHS and Merck conspired to rush to market. CDC Director David Sensor set up a swine flu war room to bolster public fear amongst an enthused media. The government launched a full-scale promotional campaign, including terrifying TV commercials depicting remorseful patients who dodged their vaccination and suffered serious illness. A CDC press release claimed that popular TV star Mary Tyler Moore had taken the jab. Moore told 60 Minutes she had avoided the shot due to her concerns about side effects. She said that she and her doctor were very happy she didn't get it. In the end, the actual number of pandemic swine flu casualties in 1976 was not one million, but one. Dr. Harvey Feinberg, who authored the government's 1978 comprehensive post-mortem of NIAID's response to that fake pandemic, told the WHO Bulletin, in 76, the virus was detected in a single military installation at Fort Dix, New Jersey. In the ensuing weeks and months, not one related swine flu case was reported elsewhere in New Jersey, the USA, or anywhere else in the world. At the same time, political decision-makers consistently thought that the scientists were giving them no choice but to go ahead with a mass immunization program. NIH's influenza and flu vaccine expert, senior bacteriologist and virologist, Dr. John Anthony Morris, informed his HHS bosses that the flu scare was a farce and that NIAID's campaign was a boondoggle to promote a dangerous and ineffective flu vaccine for a greedy industry. Dr. Morris had worked for 36 years at federal public health agencies beginning in 1940. His office, at the time of the 1976 outbreak, was a few doors down the hall from Tony Fauci's. 
Morris served as the government's chief vaccine officer and led research on the flu and flu vaccines for the Bureau of Biologics Standards, BBS, at NIH and later at FDA. Morris enjoyed a distinguished career researching viral respiratory diseases. When Dr. Morris protested the fraud, his direct superior ordered him to stand down, advising Morris not to talk about this. His NIH bosses threatened Dr. Morris with loss of employment and professional ruin if he failed to keep his mouth shut. When vaccine recipients began reporting adverse reactions, including Guillain-Barre syndrome, GBS, Dr. Morris disobeyed orders, publicly declaring that there was zero evidence that the Fort Dix swine flu was contagious to humans he reiterated the vaccine could induce neurological side effects. In response, HHS officials confiscated Dr. Morris's research materials, changed the laboratory locks, moved him to a small room with no telephone, reassigned his laboratory staff, forbade him to see visitors except with permission, and blocked his efforts to publish his findings. Finally, after months of threats and petty harassment, HHS fired Morris for insubordination, citing a long list of drummed-up charges, including failure to return library books on time. Over at CDC, scientist Dr. Michael Hatwick was also warning HHS bigwigs that the flu vaccine could cause widespread brain injuries. The 1976 swine flu vaccine was so fraught with problems that HHS discontinued the jab after vaccinating 49 million Americans. According to news accounts, the incidence of flu was seven times greater among the vaccinated than the unvaccinated. Furthermore, the vaccine caused some 500 cases of the degenerative nerve disease Guillain-Barre syndrome, 32 deaths, more than 400 paralyzations, and as many as 4,000 other injuries. Public health officials pulled the vaccine. President Ford fired David Sensor. American taxpayers ended up paying for the swine flu vaccine coming and going through guaranteed profits for Merck at the front end and outlays for piles of lawsuits from vaccine injury victims on the other side. The government paid $134 million for the swine flu vaccine program. Injured plaintiffs filed 1,604 lawsuits. By April 1985, the government had paid out $83,233,714 and spent tens of millions of dollars adjudicating and processing those claims. In 1987, Dr. Morris testified before Congress, these figures give some idea of the consequences resulting from a program in which the federal government assumes liability of a product known to produce, in an indeterminate number of recipients, serious damage to health. When I left the FDA in 1976, there was no available technique to measure, reliably and consistently, neurotoxicity or potency of most of vaccines then in use including DTP vaccines. Today, 1987, 11 years later, 
the situation remains essentially the same. Dr. Morris's research found that flu vaccines often induced fever in children and in pregnant women, and serious harm to the fetus. He worried that there were hidden risks for everyone because the vaccine was literally loaded with extraneous bacteria. According to Dr. Morris, there is a great deal of evidence to prove that immunization of children does more harm than good. In what serves as a concise epithet for his crosses, Dr. Morris stated, there is a close tie between government scientists and manufacturing scientists. My results were hurting the market for flu vaccines. In 1977, Dr. Morris instituted a wrongful dismissal suit. The court overturned all NIH's charges against him. Subsequently, a grievance committee unanimously found that his supervisors had harassed and wrongfully terminated Dr. Morris. A group of former FDA and NIH scientists endorsed Dr. Morris's criticisms of the agency. The New York Times quoted a fellow scientist, B.G. Young, who characterized NIH's reprisals against honest scientists as suppression, harassment, and censorship of individual investigators. I finally came to realize that you either had to compromise yourself or leave. Morris and Bernice Eddy are the real heroes in that place because they stayed and fought. The others voted with their feet and left. Up until his death in July 2014, Dr. Morris remained an outspoken critic of CDC's annual flu shot program. In 1979, Dr. Morris told the Washington Post, It's a medical ripoff. I believe the public should have truthful information on the basis of which they can determine whether or not to take the vaccine. I believe that given full information, they won't take the vaccine. Dr. Morris's 2014 New York Times obituary reported his statement, The producers of these influenza vaccines know they are worthless, but they go on selling them anyway. Dr. B.G. Young told the New York Times that NIH's industry-dominated culture at the vaccine division had driven away all the honest regulators, those willing to stand up to pharma. Dr. Fauci, in contrast, is the rare scientist who lasted 50 years at HHS. He has done so largely by aligning himself with NIH's pharma overlords and carrying industry water. The same weapons that NIH used to silence Dr. Morris, enforced isolation, disgrace, prohibiting him from publishing papers, presenting at conferences or talking to the press, changing his laboratory locks to prevent further research, were already pieces of an established Soviet-style template for silencing dissident scientists at NIH. The agency first unsheathed those weapons in the 1950s to destroy the career of its award-winning virologist, Dr. Bernice Eddy, the discoverer of the poliomyelitis virus, who later found a cancer-causing monkey virus in the Salk and Sabin polio vaccines. When her research disclosed problems with vaccine safety, NIH officials banned Dr. Eddy from her lab changed her office locks, 
and ordered her to refrain from interviews and speeches. After silencing Eddie, NIH gave the contaminated vaccine to 99 million baby boomers who suffered a tenfold increase in soft tissue cancers, resulting in a public health disaster that dwarfs the harms of polio. Dr. Fauci and government health regulators later used these same techniques to muzzle a parade of in-house scientists, including Dr. Judy Mikovits, NIH contract researcher Dr. Bart Klassen, and CDC's Varicella chickenpox vaccine researcher Dr. Gary Goldman, who dared to tell hard truths about vaccine safety and efficacy. The 1976 swine flu event was the first time that the federal government agreed to serve as pharma's insurer. The episode taught the public an important lesson. Tort immunity incentivizes dangerous and ineffective vaccines. Industry and the magisterial class learned an entirely different morale from the tragic episode. In 1986, they made swine flu vaccine template the model for the National Childhood Vaccine Injury Act, which shielded all mandated vaccines from liability. At the dawn of Dr. Fauci's career, he learned that both pandemics and fake pandemics provide an opportunity to expand the bureaucracy's power and to multiply the wealth of its pharma partners. 2005 Bird Flu In 2005, Dr. Fauci revived NIAID's script from the 1976 debacle. This time, the villain was an avian flu, H5N1. Like an agitated chicken little, Dr. Fauci had been warning the world about the imminent bird flu pandemic since 2001. That year, in a paper, Infectious Diseases, Considerations for the 21st Century, Dr. Fauci balefully forecast a bird-to-human transmission of an influenza scourge that would decimate global populations, beginning with Hong Kong. He predicted unprecedented carnage from this new strain of influenza A virus entering a population that is relatively naive for the microbe in question. In 2004, a Vietnam-based Oxford University Clinical Research Unit Director, Jeremy Ferrer, who would later rise to both knighthood and to command of the powerful Welcome Trust, and his Vietnamese colleague Tran Tin Hien, identified the reemergence of the deadly bird flu, or H5N1, in humans. It was a little girl. She caught it from a pet duck that had died, and she dug up and reburied, Ferrer told the Financial Times. The Wellcome Trust heavily funded Oxford's Vietnam Project. Drug developer Sir Henry Wellcome established Wellcome Trust with a donation of his stock in Burroughs Wellcome, the British pharmaceutical behemoth. In 1995, the Trust sold its stock to Burroughs Wellcome's chief competitor, GlaxoSmithKline, to facilitate the merger of England's two pharmaceutical giants. Wellcome Trust's $30 billion endowment makes it the world's fourth-largest foundation and the globe's most prodigious financier of biomedical research. Like the Gates Foundation, 
welcome targets its donations to promote the interests of the pharmaceutical industry. In 2007, British medical journalist John Stone raised the issue of phony pandemics in a letter to BMJ online as part of the swine flu postmortem. There always remains the issues, he said, of whether scares are being promoted because of sober assessment of risk or because they constitute another bonanza for the pharmaceutical industry. We need better institutional means to spot the difference, but so far pandemic flu has been disappointing for the horror merchants. Does anyone recall the moral of the story of the little boy who cried wolf? Well, it is what the industry does all the time. In 2020, Ferrer would partner with Bill Gates to fund modeler Neil Ferguson, the epidemiologist who produced the wildly exaggerated COVID-19 death forecasts that helped ratchet up the COVID-19 fear campaign and rationalize draconian lockdowns. As Schwab mentions, Ferrer was at the heart of the earlier fiasco involving avian flu generated around the delusory fear that the virus would cross the species barrier. Ferguson is the modeling impresario at drumming up phony pandemics. His curriculum vitae includes, In 2005, Ferguson predicted that up to 150 million people could be killed from bird flu. In the end, only 282 people died worldwide from the disease between 2003 and 2009. In 2001, a published Imperial College projection by Ferguson sparked the mass culling of 11 million sheep and cattle during the 2001 outbreak of foot and mouth disease. In 2002, he projected human deaths of 136,000 in the UK from mad cow disease. The UK government slaughtered millions of cows. The actual number of deaths was 177. In 2009, Ferguson projected that the swine flu would kill 65,000 Brits. Swine flu killed 457 people in the UK. In 2020, Ferguson famously predicted up to 2.2 million COVID-19 deaths in the United States in 2020 alone. Dr. Fauci, in many Western countries, used Ferguson's projection to justify lockdowns and other draconian mandates. Ferrer played a key role in Dr. Fauci's campaign to cover up evidence of government involvement in the potential lab generation of COVID-19. In 2005, Dr. Fauci crowed that his long-awaited bird flu had finally arrived. Using data from Ferguson, he warned it would kill millions of people worldwide unless he and his pharma partners could deploy a vaccine to derail the approaching Holocaust. Political and medical establishment cheerleaders mobilized for the now-familiar drill boosting pandemic panic. Parroting Dr. Fauci's bird anxieties, government ministries of countries like the United States, Canada, and France, and the World Health Organization bewailed that H5N1 was highly contagious and deadly. The World Health Organization and the World Bank screeched that the plague could cost the world $2 trillion. 
Anthony Fauci prophesied that H5N1 is a time bomb waiting to go off. Klaus Storr, then coordinator of the influenza program at the World Health Organization, amplified Dr. Fauci's augury, predicting that between two to seven million people would die and that billions would fall ill worldwide. In September 2005, Der Spiegel quoted the United Nations Chief Coordinator David Nabarro that the new flu pandemic can kill up to 150 million people. The New Yorker offered overwrought bodements of millions of deaths from one of the greatest dangers facing the United States. Pandemic expert Robert Webster invoked military vernacular that had become de rigueur for loosening public purse strings in the post-9-11 biosecurity era. We have to prepare as if we were going to war, and the public needs to understand that clearly. This virus is playing its role as a natural bioterrorist. In response to Dr. Fauci's lathered forecasts, the White House unveiled a Christmas list for the Bush family's favorite medicine man, including $7.1 billion to protect Americans from his avian plague. President George W. Bush warned that no country can afford to ignore the threat of avian flu. Dr. Fauci trotted out his reliable old chestnut that the new version of bird flu could be as lethal as the 1918 Spanish flu epidemic that killed 50 to 100 million people. Dr. Fauci had reason to know that this weary boogeyman was a canard. In 2008, he co-authored a study for the Journal of Infectious Disease confessing that virtually all of the influenza casualties in 1918 did not actually die from the flu, but from bacterial pneumonia and bronchial meningitis, which are today easily treated with antibiotics unavailable in 1918. The Spanish flu that government virologists have invoked to terrorize generations of Americans with vaccine compliance is, after all, a paper tiger. Bush told the U.S. Congress the country needed $1.2 billion for sufficient avian virus vaccine to inoculate 20 million Americans. Additionally, he added $3 billion for Dr. Fauci's new seasonal flu vaccines and a billion dollars for the storage of antiviral medications. Bush also demanded that Congress pass the Biodefense and Pandemic Vaccine and Drug Development Act of 2005, granting liability relief to vaccine manufacturers. The pharmaceutical firms told the White House that they would refuse to manufacture vaccines without an impervious shield from tort liability. The act banned lawsuits against even the most negligent, reckless, and reprehensible behavior by vaccine makers, even for vaccinations administered by force. The immunity provision was a blank check to Big Pharma's greed and criminal profiteering. The National Vaccine Information Center called the scheme a drug company stockholder's dream and a consumer's worst nightmare. Dr. Fauci arranged for rich vaccine contracts to Sanofi and Chiron to shore up the fragile vaccine enterprise. Once again, Dr. Fauci's pandemic 
was a no-show. By the time it was all over, the WHO estimated that by May 16, 2006, Dr. Fauci's bird flu had killed only 100 people worldwide. As the investigative journalist and attorney Michael Fumento observed in his postmortem on Dr. Fauci's bird flu hoax, Dr. Fauci's recurring disease nightmares often don't materialize. Fumento recounted in Forbes magazine, Around the world, nations heeded the warnings and spent vast sums developing vaccines and making other preparations. 2009 Hong Kong Swine Flu In 2009, Dr. Fauci once again hyped a fraudulent epidemic. This time, it was the Hong Kong Swine Flu. That year, in a classic bait-and-switch, which Dr. Fauci and the Wellcome Trust helped to mastermind, the WHO, by then under control of Pharma and its emergent funder Bill Gates, declared a swine flu pandemic. Three years earlier, Gates had appointed GlaxoSmithKline's director, Tachi Yamada, to run his foundation's global health program. Yamada also sat on the board of Neil Ferguson's outfit, the Imperial College London, which ran the fraudulent modeling that grievously inflated projected death counts from the 2009 swine flu outbreak and more recently for COVID-19. Gates is one of the largest funders for the Imperial College London's modeling center. Neil Ferguson, the epidemiologist who produced the fraudulent projections, also sat on the Welcome Trust staff with Jeremy Ferrer. There was no sign of a pandemic. In May of that year, WHO had detected some excess cases of seasonal flu, but the symptoms were mild and death rates were very low. Fewer than 145 people worldwide over 11 weeks since its first appearance. Nevertheless, the agency decided in secret meetings to declare a global pandemic. WHO's declaration activated $18 billion worth of sleeper contracts that WHO and Gates's other organizations had pressured various African and European countries to sign with GlaxoSmithKline and other pharmaceutical companies. These secretive agreements obliged signatory nations, including Germany, Great Britain, Italy, and France, to purchase $18 billion of various experimental, untested, fast-tracked, zero-liability H1N1 flu vaccines, most notably Glaxo's product, Pandemrix, in the event that the WHO declared a Class 6 pandemic. Then, just in time to trigger the sleeper contracts, WHO, in a sleazy switcheroo, changed the definition of Class 6 pandemic deleting the words and the requirement for mass deaths around the globe. You could now have a pandemic with zero deaths, explained Michael Fumento in Forbes magazine. Under hot pressure from apoplectic critics of the boondoggle, WHO denied and then sheepishly admitted that it had downgraded its definition in consultation with government and industry scientists. The names of those individuals, WHO explained, needed to remain top secret for reasons that WHO didn't explain. To date, 
WHO has refused to disclose the identities of its trusted confidants. There was widespread suspicion that most of those officials were PIs on the payroll of Glaxo and other vaccine makers. According to the British Medical Journal, the World Health Organization's handling of the swine flu pandemic was deeply marred by secrecy and conflict of interest with drug companies. The BMJ found that the experts who wrote WHO's guidelines on the use of antiviral drugs had received consulting fees from the top two manufacturers of these drugs, Roche and GlaxoSmithKline, GSK. Among the driving forces behind the pandemic declaration was Sir Roy Anderson, a board member of GlaxoSmithKline and the rector of Imperial College London, which would play such a prominent role in concocting both the 2009 swine flu and the 2020 COVID-19 crises. WHO's pandemic declaration forced five European and several African countries to purchase millions of doses of Glaxo's dangerous pandemic vaccine, earning Glaxo a cool and fast $13 billion. Sanofi reported a profit of 1.95 billion euros on its swine flu vaccine revenue. According to a report on the episode by the London-based Bureau of Investigative Journalism, the WHO violated its own rules by not publicly disclosing the conflicts among its key advisors when it drew up the guidelines. Contemporary news accounts identify Dr. Fauci as the chief proponent of the multi-billion dollar fast-track H1N1 flu vaccine given that year to millions of Americans. Dr. Fauci is more responsible than any other single person for the fast-track development of this new flu vaccine, according to a contemporary report by National Public Radio's Richard Knox. As usual, the fawning U.S. media obediently spread fear and lies to promote Dr. Fauci's H1N1 jabs. NBC grimly forecasted that swine flu could strike up to 40% of Americans over the next two years, and as many as several hundred thousand could die if a vaccine campaign and other measures aren't successful. Historian Dr. Russell Blaylock writes, The Ministry of Fear, the CDC, was working overtime peddling doom and gloom, knowing that frightened people do not make rational decisions. Nothing sells vaccines like panic. At a January 2019 conference hosted by the Gates Foundation-funded Center on Global Health Security at London's Chatham House, Mark Van Ranst, a Belgian virologist and pharmaceutical industry insider, financially and ideologically indentured to GSK, Sanofi Pasteur, J&J, and Abbott, described his role during the swine flu hoax a decade earlier. Chatham House is an exclusive think tank for globalist and corporatist elites. Its deliberations are so closely guarded that its name is synonymous with secrecy. In 2009, Van Ranst served as Belgium's flu commissioner in charge of managing crisis communication. To audible and admiring guffaws, 
Van Ranst told his core delete audience how to stage a pandemic. You have one opportunity to do it right, he said. You have to go for one voice, one message. You have to be omnipresent that first day or days so you attract media attention. And they're not going to search for alternative voices. He explained that talking about fatalities is important because people say, wow, what do you mean? People die because of influenza? That was a necessary step to take. Then, of course, a couple of days later, you had the first H1N1 death in the country, and the scene was set. He continued, I misused the fact that the top football clubs in Belgium inappropriately and against all agreements made their soccer players priority people. I could use that because if the population really believes that this vaccine is so desirable that even these soccer players would be dishonest to get their vaccine, okay, I can play with that. So I made a big fuss about it. It worked. In 2020, this kind of thinking earned Van Ranst appointments to the Belgian Risk Assessment Group, RAG, and to the Scientific Committee Coronavirus, which advises Belgian health authorities on combating the virus. He became the public face of Belgium's response to COVID-19. By October 2009, many people were complaining of a wave of devastating illnesses from the flu shots. From the beginning of their concocted pandemic, Dr. Fauci and other trusted public health officials had stressed that pregnant women were at a special risk from the swine flu compared to the seasonal flu. This was a lie, but terrified mothers queued up in droves to get the jab. Many of them would regret their choice. Research by Goldman in 2013 documented an 11-fold increase in fetal loss reports following the 2009-2010 to 2010 pandemic flu season when pregnant women received two seasonal flu vaccines during pregnancy and the H1N1 vaccine. A 2017 CDC study links miscarriage to flu vaccines, particularly in the first trimester. Pregnant women vaccinated in the 2010-2011 and 2011-2012 flu seasons had two times greater odds of having a miscarriage within 28 days of receiving the vaccine. In women who had received the H1N1 vaccine in the previous flu season, the odds of having a miscarriage within 28 days were 7.7 times greater than in women who did not receive a flu shot during their pregnancy. To quiet the clamor, Dr. Fauci took to YouTube to reassure the global public that the flu shots were rigorously tested, perfectly safe, and that the risks of serious adverse events for the influenza vaccine are very, very, very small. This statement was scientifically baseless. Heavy conflicts of interest marred the underlying studies, which received fast-tracked approval without any functional double-blind placebo controls. Dr. Fauci went on to explain, the H1N1 pandemic flu vaccine is made exactly the same way by the same manufacturers with the same processing, the same materials as we make seasonal flu vaccine, which has an extraordinarily good safety record. Two months after Dr. Fauci made these public assurances, an explosion of grave side effects 
including miscarriages, narcolepsy, and febrile convulsions, was causing carnage in multiple countries. According to the European Medicines Agency, EMA, pandemics caused more than 980 cases of severe neurological injuries, paralysis from Guillain-Barre syndrome, debilitating narcolepsy, and cataplexy, including in more than 500 children. The Glaxo vaccine killed and injured so many children and health workers with various forms of brain damage that it forced Glaxo to withdraw the vaccine. The 2009 H1N1 swine flu pandemic was another hyped global contagion fraud that never materialized. Epidemiologist Dr. Wolfgang Wodarg, chairman of the Health Committee of the Parliamentary Assembly of the Council of Europe, PACE, declared that the 2009 false pandemic was one of the greatest medicine scandals of the century. The director of the WHO Collaborating Center for Epidemiology in Munster, Germany, Dr. Ulrich Kiel, labeled the pandemic a meticulously planned hoax. We are witnessing a gigantic misallocation of resources, $18 billion so far. In terms of public health, Kiel said, Writing in Forbes magazine, medical journalist Michael Fumento concluded that this wasn't merely overcautiousness or simple misjudgment. The pandemic declaration and all the klaxon ringing since reflect sheer dishonesty motivated not by medical concerns, but political ones. Wolf Dieter Ludwig, medical professor and chairman of the Drug Commission of the German Medical Profession, declared that the boards of health have been taken in by a campaign of the pharmaceutical companies that simply wanted to earn money with the supposed threat. As usual, there was no investigation of Dr. Fauci or the other medical officials who choreographed this multi-billion dollar fraud. The pharmaceutical companies walked away with billions, sticking governments and taxpayers with the ruinous cost of compensating flu-shot injuries. In his 2011 article about the scandal, in the journal of Dr. Med Mabuse, The Power of Money, a Fundamental Reform of the WHO is Overdue, psychologist Thomas Gebauer wrote that increasingly, private money or earmarked donations from individual states are deciding on the goals and strategies of the WHO. The extent of their influence was recently demonstrated by the way the WHO dealt with the swine flu. The article opens with a photo of Bill Gates. In his book Virus Mania, journalist Torsten Engelbrecht quotes epidemiologist Angela Spelsberg, an expert on pandemic manipulation and drug industry corruption, that the swine flu pandemic was deliberately used by the pharmaceutical industry for marketing purposes. 2016 Zika In March of 2016, Dr. Fauci again misled the public, this time into believing that the Zika virus was causing an epidemic of microcephaly among newborn babies in Brazil. One thing we know for sure, Zika doesn't cause microcephaly. Dr. Fauci had to have learned this. Zika was endemic to Central America 
and much of South Asia for many generations with no reported association with microcephaly. Dr. Fauci's critics claimed that an experimental DPT vaccine administered to pregnant women in 2015 and 2016 in the slums of northeast Brazil was the likely culprit for the wave of microcephaly. Extensive use of highly toxic pesticides in that corner of the nation may have also contributed. They accused Dr. Fauci of pointing the finger at Zika to distract attention from the more likely culprits and to extract billions of dollars from Congress to develop yet another chimeric vaccine. The servile media, fattening on pharma advertising, delighting in the frightening epidemic that yielded children with tiny heads and great big ratings for the networks, obligingly heaped fuel onto Dr. Fauci's Zika terror crusade. Fear drives viewership, as CNN technical director Charlie Chester explained to industry analysts during the COVID-19 crisis, COVID? Gangbusters with ratings, right? Which is why we have the death toll on the side. Dr. Fauci announced that he was pulling funds from malaria, influenza, and tuberculosis research programs in order to fund a series of four or five vaccines to rescue America from Zika. By fanning the flames of pandemic panic, Dr. Fauci, buttressed by his partner Bill Gates, requested an additional nearly $2 billion congressional appropriation to NIAID to develop a Zika vaccine. That money swelled his agency's Zika budget to about $2 billion and enriched his pharmaceutical partners. Dr. Fauci funneled $125 million to a new Cambridge, Massachusetts startup then called Moderna Therapeutics to develop an mRNA vaccine for Zika. Gates appeared on CNBC to tout Moderna and promote its efforts to deliver a Zika jab. He put $18 million into a project with the Wellcome Trust to fund a U.S.-owned company, Oxitec, headquartered near Oxford University in the U.K., to release millions of genetically modified mosquitoes in Brazil and the communities to exterminate the mosquito species blamed for spreading Zika. This was a follow-up to an even slightly more sinister 2008 Gates-funded study by Professor Hiroyuki Matsuoka at Jichi Medical University in Japan to engineer mosquitoes that can act as flying syringes to inject malaria vaccine into people, both the willing and the unwilling. In 2021, Gates would expand on this macabre project by investing $25 million in an effort to genetically modify mosquitoes to stealthily deliver coronavirus vaccine to the vaccine-hesitant. I'm not joking. The feverish predictions of a microcephaly scourge in Brazil soon fizzled. World Health Organization spokesman Christopher Dye told NPR that while we apparently saw a lot of cases of Zika virus in 2016, there was no microcephaly. Peaking at a high of about 5,200 cases in 2016, the United States has recorded a total of about 550 Zika cases since then, with roughly 80% of those occurring in 2017, 
with no reported microcephaly. The disease never spread beyond Florida and Texas, and no cases of Zika-associated microcephaly ever materialized. Undaunted, Dr. Fauci warned that the disease will come again to the United States and that the country absolutely has to be prepared for it. In 2019, health officials reported only 15 cases of Zika in the United States, all of them microcephaly-free. The Mayo Clinic, meanwhile, reported in December that, despite Dr. Fauci's $2 billion expenditure, there is no functional vaccine for the disease. By 2020, Dr. Fauci could no longer credibly blame the microcephaly epidemic on Zika, and he stopped talking about his vaccine. In June 2020, Dr. Fauci, under questioning before Congress, sheepishly explained it was never brought to full fruition because Zika disappeared. 2016 Dengue The Gates-Fauci-Zika scam squandered billions of taxpayer money, but the Gates-Fauci-Dengue vaccine collaboration had a far graver outcome. This time, their life-saving vaccine was a death trap in a syringe. Over a span of two decades, NIAID worked with the Gates Foundation to develop a vaccine against the mosquito-borne dengue virus, the most widespread tropical disease after malaria. Only a month after Fauci's agency filed its first of 305 patent applications in November 2003 toward development of mutations useful for attenuating dengue viruses and chimeric dengue viruses, the Gates Foundation announced a $55 million grant to support the Pediatric Dengue Vaccine Initiative. In September 2006, Sanofi Pasteur entered a partnership with the initiative. By July 2007, NIAID's prototype dengue vaccine candidate emerged out of preclinical trials with what Dr. Fauci called a promising future. NIAID awarded several industry sponsors in Europe and Brazil non-exclusive licenses for its formulations. Early the following year, Dr. Fauci issued another of his hysterical pandemic warnings in a commentary for the American Medical Association's journal. A disease most Americans have never heard of could soon become more prevalent if dengue, a flu-like illness that can turn deadly, continues to expand into temperate climates and increase in severity. Efforts to control the transmitting mosquitoes had fallen short, Fauci said, and widespread appearance of dengue in the continental United States is a real possibility. To fight the disease, the formidable challenges of understanding dengue pathogenesis and of developing effective therapies and vaccines must be met. NIAID announced its dengue virus vaccine clinical trial in August 2010 at the Gates-funded Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health in Baltimore and at the University of Vermont. Fauci said, with increasing infection rates and disease severity around the world and the discovery of dengue in parts of Florida, 
finding a way to prevent dengue infection is an important priority. Gates's WHO fueled Dr. Fauci's feverish dengue furor warning. In 2012, dengue ranks as the most important mosquito-borne viral disease with an epidemic potential in the world. There has been a 30-fold increase in the global incidence of dengue during the past 50 years, and its human and economic costs are staggering. However, referring to the Gates-Fauci projects, WHO predicted progress on vaccines that induce long-lasting protective immunity. Dr. Ralph Berrick, the gain-of-function guru, was the American darling of both NIAID and the Defense Advanced Research Project Agency, DARPA. His lab at UNC Chapel Hill received $726,498 from the Gates Foundation for using recombinant dengue viruses to advance dengue vaccine development. Originating in February 2015, the three-year grant was scheduled to conclude early in 2018. In July 2014, Lance Gordon, the BMGF's Director for Neglected Infectious Diseases in its Global Health Program, released news that the Sanofi Pasteur experimental dengue vaccine that Gates and Dr. Fauci funded was showing positive clinical results. Amidst his sunny forecast, Gordon made an ominous allusion that would have sounded DEFCON 1 to anyone decoding its implication. NIAID's clinical trials in Brazil, he acknowledged, showed signals of pathogenic priming. That foreboding phrase describes an enhanced immune response that can trigger system-wide inflammation and death when the vaccinated individual is re-exposed to the wild virus. Infectious disease experts and health regulators had recognized the deadly potential of pathogenic priming since the 1980s, when one study showed that more severe responses were found to be 15 to 80 times more likely in secondary dengue infections than in primary infections. In 2004, an experimental MERS vaccine had produced robust antibody response in children during an NIH trial and then catastrophic illness and death when researchers exposed the children to wild virus. Similarly, in 2012 and 2014, a collaborative of Chinese and U.S. researchers had developed coronavirus vaccines that produced antibodies in ferrets and cats and then killed them when they encountered the actual wild coronavirus. But Gordon's admission didn't set off an alarm. The WHO, under Gates's firm control, was bent on accelerating development of the Gates-Fauci Dengue Project. Dr. Fauci was also undeterred. Omitting any mention of the danger signals, Dr. Fauci proclaimed in January 2016 that the project would proceed. Researchers, he said, in NIAID's Laboratory of Infectious Diseases, spent many years developing and testing dengue vaccine candidates designed to elicit antibodies against all four dengue virus serotypes. An article published in The American Ethnologist bore a curious title, 
Chimeric Globalism, Global Health in the Shadow of the Dengue Vaccine, April 2015. The piece described the NIAID effort, a laboratory-engineered chimeric dengue fever vaccine entered late-stage clinical trials in the late 2000s. The article asked readers to consider the implications when vaccine development is not entirely driven by a public health aspiration, but by the divergent logics of pharmaceutical capital, humanitarianism, and biosecurity. The dengue venture didn't proceed smoothly for Sanofi Pasteur. With Gates Foundation support, the French pharma company spent 20 years and some $2 billion to develop Dengvexia, testing the vaccine in several large trials on over 30,000 children globally. When Dr. Scott Halstead, who studied dengue for more than 50 years with the U.S. military, read the clinical safety data trial in the New England Journal of Medicine, he immediately knew something was very wrong. Some children who caught dengue after receiving the vaccination experienced dramatically worsened symptoms. For kids never before exposed to dengue, dengvexia also appeared to increase the lifelong risk of a deadly complication known as plasma leakage syndrome, which catapults a person into profound shock before killing them. Dr. Halstead was so worried that he raised alarm bells in six separate editorials for scientific journals. He even made a video warning the Philippine government, which was about to start a mass vaccination campaign. Gates, Dr. Fauci, and Sanofi ignored Halstead's frantic warnings. Sanofi responded by publishing a rebuttal to Dr. Halstead and promising more studies. Without waiting for the research, in April 2016, Bill Gates's minions at WHO moved to recommend Dengvaxia for all children ages 9 to 16. Already the previous December, the Dengue Vaccine Initiative, supported by Gates Foundation funding, had announced that the Philippine government would soon become the second country after Mexico to approve Dengvaxia shots. A year and a half later, Sanofi announced that it had new information about the vaccine's safety. Confirming Dr. Holstead's fears, the company made the alarming admission that Dengvaxia did indeed increase the risk of hospitalization and cytoplasmic leakage syndrome. By this time, health officials had already inoculated some 800,000 Filipino children. At least 600 had died. The WHO eventually changed its recommendation, saying that Dengvaxia was safe only for kids who'd had a prior dengue infection and admitting that 100,000 should not have received the shot. Following autopsies on 600 deceased children, the Philippine public attorney indicted 14 Philippines government officials and six Sanofi executives for criminal homicide. Accustomed as he was to this sort of collateral damage in his war against the bugs, Dr. Fauci put a sunny face on the dead children. Telling the Wall Street Journal in January 2018, we do not think this is going to be a showstopper in any way or form. Although, he added, clearly there's going to be not as smooth a trip. Operating on his consistent strategy that the best defense is a good offense, 
Dr. Fauci announced full speed ahead in Dengvaxia trials in Brazil. Pathogenic priming be damned. He boasted that NIAID's dengue vaccine candidate is in a late-stage clinical trial involving 17,000 participants in Brazil, and it had induced an immune response in tests against all four dengue types. NIAID's vaccine has been licensed to several companies, including Merck, which said it plans to start its own trial this year. In December 2018, Merck and the Instituto Butantan, the main producer of vaccines in Brazil, announced a collaboration agreement after licensing certain rights from National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases to develop live, attenuated, tetravalent vaccines for dengue. The nonprofit Instituto Butantan will receive a $26 million upfront payment from Merck and is eligible to receive up to $75 million for the achievement of certain milestones related to the development and commercialization of Merck's investigational vaccine, as well as potential royalties on sales. It acts in partnership with various universities and entities, such as the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, for the achievement of its institutional objectives. In May 2019, the FDA approved Sanofi's Dengvaxia vaccine for use in the United States, Puerto Rico, Guam, and the British Virgin Islands, with the caveat that doctors first have proof of a prior dengue infection to make sure the jab wouldn't pose any risks to the child. The 600 Philippine children died as the result of pathogenic priming or antibody-dependent enhancement. Padron Regalado et al. report on dozens of papers where SARS and MERS vaccines under development led to antibody-dependent enhancement, ADE, in animal trials upon viral challenge. An inactivated SARS virus vaccine platform led to immunopathologies consistent with ADE in mice challenged with the virus. A vaccine candidate based on a SARS-N protein resulted in immunopathology with eosinophilic lung infiltrates in mice upon SARS-CoV challenge. Vaccinia virus expressing the SARS-S protein showed strong inflammatory responses leading to hepatitis in the livers of vaccinated ferrets upon challenge with SARS-CoV. Vaccines based on soluble S protein alone elicited antibody-dependent enhancement within in vitro studies involving human B cells, leading the authors to warrant concern regarding human vaccine development. A chemically inactivated virus MERS vaccine led to lung pathology eosinophilic infiltrates with a virus challenge in mouse studies by Agrawal et al. A vaccine based on the transgenic spike protein of MERS when administered to mice led to pulmonary hemorrhage after a challenge with MERS-CoV virus. Conclusion, the development of highly effective and safe vaccines for COVID-19 should consider aspects such as the possibility of ADE and other adverse effects previously observed with SARS and MERS. Even though these features have only been seen in some animal models and vaccination regimens, the possibility is still there to be considered. 
for COVID-19. In April 2020, soon after the COVID-19 pandemic began, vaccine tycoon and Merck spokesperson Dr. Paul Offit, director of the Vaccine Education Center at Philadelphia's Children's Hospital, warned about similar effects from a SARS-CoV-2 vaccine. We saw that with the dengue vaccine, Offit told an interviewer. In children who've never been exposed to dengue before, it actually made them worse when they were then exposed to the natural virus. Much worse, causing something called dengue hemorrhagic shock syndrome. Children died, vaccinated children who were less than nine years of age. A warning about the tendency of coronavirus vaccines to induce pathogenic priming appeared in a 2009 article in Expert Review of Vaccines, republished on NIH's website in January 2014. The greatest fear among vaccinologists is the creation of a vaccine that is not only ineffective, but which exacerbates disease. Unfortunately, COV vaccines have a history of enhancing disease, notably with feline COVs. Pandemic Championships There is an old saw about a cuckold with a murderous grudge against a lion tamer, but no gumption for homicide. For years he follows the circus, hoping to be in attendance on that inevitable day when an aggrieved feline turns on the trainer. When decades of frustrated waiting for divine justice finally exhaust his patience, he sneaks into the lion tamer's dressing room to sprinkle pepper in his wig powder. That evening the lion sneezes and decapitates its philandering handler. The compelling evidence suggesting that COVID-19 emanated from a Fauci-funded little shop of horrors in Wuhan, China, raises the ironic possibility that the man whom two U.S. presidents have charged with leading the global response to the COVID-19 pandemic may be the same man who spawned it. That strange paradox might cause some to cynically ponder the logic behind Dr. Fauci's peculiar decisions to defy President Obama's 2014 gain-of-function moratorium, to dodge NIH's Internal Safety Review Committee, to launder money to Chinese scientists with military affiliations through a sketchy bioweapons grifter, to finance criminally reckless experiments minting souped-up pathogens in a shabby Chinese lab with lax safety protocols. Are we justified in asking ourselves whether Tony Fauci, after decades of concocting toothless pandemics, was finally peppering the wig? But putting aside Dr. Fauci's involvement with Wuhan and his decades of fashioning flop contagions, we must acknowledge that in 2020, he finally hit the jackpot with COVID-19. Among the more revealing documents in Dr. Fauci's June 2021 email dump is a rough schematic that Dr. Fauci signed Tony F., depicting a March Madness-style tournament bracket scoring the pestilential contestants during two decades of mostly phony contagions. COVID-19 finally emerges as champion. The doodle is titled Dr. Fauci's March Madness Bracketology Picks, and dated March 11, 2020. In this macabre pool, coronavirus, top-seeded out of the East region, 
defeats the entire field that includes his long litany of contrived diseases, including smallpox, chickenpox, bird flu, swine flu, Zika, hepatitis B, smallpox, MERS, and measles. The drawing suggests Dr. Fauci's pride in a final satisfying victory after a long, often triumphant career engineering global pandemics. Please go to the Children's Health Defense website for the acknowledgments, and notes by chapter, updates to data, and new information that becomes available on any of the subject matter covered in this audiobook.